Welcome to the Matt Goodwin Subcast. It's good to have you with us. This is a subscriber-supported platform, so do consider supporting us at mattgoodwin.substack.com and feel free to connect with me direct on Twitter at GoodwinMJ. We hope you enjoy today's Subcast. Welcome back to the Subcast, and this week I am delighted to be joined by fellow Substacker Ed West. Hi, Ed. Hello. You will know Ed, uh, I am sure, from his very insightful must-read Substack, uh, Wrong Side of History. Uh, You might also know Ed because he wrote for Unheard for quite a while, and he's also published a couple of great books uh, on the, I suppose, the demise of conservatism in British politics and the bleak destiny that awaits conservatives. Is that right, Ed? That's correct. Yeah, I'm the Cassandra of uh, conservatism, I suppose. (laughs) But he's also, uh, Ed is also somebody who I always find just incredibly insightful, funny, and uh, I've enjoyed his commentary. And I sort of feel like this podcast is coming at the right time because we are both sat here, on the one hand, having gone through the Brexit uh, realignment and sharing notes and conversations about that and probably agreeing with each other on a lot of it and now find ourselves sort of looking at Liz Truss and this very different brand of conservative politics and wondering well what on earth is going to happen now so let me start there Ed and ask you for your views about what is Liz Truss going to do to the Conservative Party? Well I'm making I'm sticking my neck out and and suggesting that I think they might not win the election um I don't mean it. As we speak, there I think we're on twenty percent, and amongst the under fifties, I think the latest poll they might be down to eight percent. Um, being too generous, actually, I, th- I saw six percent. Okay, that's within that's that's the sort of percentage of people who believe that um, aliens have visited the Earth. So um, that that's pretty bad. I mean, uh, from my point of view, I, you know, I'm the doom monger, pessimistic one, and um, I mean, so my book on the subject, um, "Small Men and the Wrong Side of History," was about the decline of conservatism and. Uh, in typical uh, pessimistic style, it kind of came out bad timing because it was just after Boris had won the election and everyone's saying, well, how can you say conservatism on his way out? Because uh, they've just won this massive, you know, victory. I think I said that to you, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it was a you know, reasonable thing because it's kind of like, well, how can you be so pessimistic? You're, you know, at your moment of triumph. Um, and my basic point was, you know, the, dem- the, the, the demographic undercurrents in the population are very, very, very bad for the conservatives. And they've got a couple of, election wins left because of just just the way the realignment has sort of happened at the time um you know in your recent post about zoomers uh, you know the the generation coming up of very very hostile to conservative ideas and this is not like a you know the old age thing of the young being rebellious the young in the past haven't been particularly radical they've actually been quite conservative of them um this is quite a new development uh, so I said, you know, like in five or 10 years, the Conservatives are basically facing this kind of demographic tsunami. They're going to just be wiped out, um, maybe not electorally, but, um, you know, at least culturally. And now, but they say they sort of sped it up, really, because of this kind of, you know, the British politics last six or seven years, just basically this kind of series of bizarre, um, bizarre events, isn't it? Sort of unlikely, unlikely happenings. The latest one, obviously, you know, Boris is down for, for these kind of strange reasons. Uh, and now they've elected someone who's pretty much just the complete opposite um, of of who they should be getting in, in terms of you know the you know they won they won on this you know this new this you know realignment, 
uh, and they've gone, you know, closer to the sort of, you know, the top left quadrant of the uh, political map. And they've elected someone who's literally the complete opposite of that, who's going to guaranteed to be as, as unpopular as possible in these kind of new seats, which they desperately need to hold on if they're going to have any chance of winning. Um, so it just seems like one of these kind of like wild, you know, if you read like history, there's lots of events where it just sort of doesn't make sense. And you just think, why did they do that? Why, you know, why invade that country? Or why, or why appoint someone like that into that position? Um, and, and the Conservatives seem, I mean, you know, intent on, on completely, you know, going going to the wall if, if they if they um, continue this current way. I mean, you know, twenty percent is. I mean, and it looks like it's actually going to be worse than nineteen ninety seven in many ways. You know, it's they're lucky in that Labour don't really have a very charismatic leader to put it. You know, to put it nicely, Keir Starmer is quite boring. But um, you know, they may well leave the country in a very bad economic situation, and they've sort of lost all their their kind of core demographic. You know, they have okay, so let, just just for just for the purpose of debate, let me let me just push that push back on you on a couple of things there. Sure. So if I read you right, so the thesis basically is that demographic change, rising numbers of university graduates, millennials and Zoomers basically replacing over time the boomers and the the Gen Xers, and the sort of liberal drift in British society that on a whole suite of issues such as same-sex marriage, uh, immigration to some extent, women's rights, you basically see the country becoming much more socially liberal than it used to be. And that, in effect, what we're going to see, probably in our lifetime, um, is is the liberalisation of the country or the Londonization of the country. We're going to become a sort of kind of smaller version of Canada. Is that basically yeah. your thesis? Yeah, but, but but you know, considerably poorer than Canada. Um, and, you know, there are economic factors, obviously, hugely at work here. That Britain hasn't really had any growth for fifteen years. Uh, you know, it's very boring, but a lot of it just comes down to house prices. There's a huge, you know, big correlation between home ownership and uh, you know voting for conservative parties. And if house prices have just continued to rise and rise and rise, and if the you know if the annual increase is more than the average salary, then that's you know, that reads like something at the beginning, like chapter one of some like terrible history book about a horrible event. You know, like that, I mean, that's literally the situation that it wasn't in Tsarist Russia. People were spending 50% of their income on rent. Um, so, I mean, there's no reason why a younger generation would, would want to vote Tory in that situation. But on the other hand, you know, there's the, the other side to that is, you know, universities, um, you know, what where, where is like 45% of people going to universities or, or something similar, uh, maybe it's 42 universities are definitely driving a kind of a sort of you know a liberal culture because the um just because the worldview of universities is necessarily um quite liberal even without you know academics being you know very much on the left um there are all these sort of changes that um the conservatives had you know they've been distracted but they've had 12 years to sort of do something about these problems about house prices um, about the imbalance between um, a vocational courses and you know quite some the overproduction of sort of humanities uh, courses, all these factors which are working against them, and they've sort of done nothing against. And another one is immigration. You know, um, young people who can't afford rent tend to be very, very um, pro migration, pro you know, I would say functional open borders. Even though they don't say that for open borders, they're against anything that actually reduces immigration. So it's functionally the same. Even though um, 
you know, like the Brexit supporters they oppose, they're, they're voting against their own economic interests because house prices are, are increased by immigration. If, if you allow the whole world to come to London, London's going to be completely unaffordable for you. But, you know, this is a sort of uh, a kind of worldview and ideology, which is is completely spread through um, the spread of graduate places. I mean, whatever the Tory party thinks, and I think they're completely insane about this. Brexit was a vote for lower immigration. I mean, that's that is what people voted for. They voted particularly, they didn't want to have to continue living in a very low wage society um, where they're competing with huge numbers of people in these kind of service jobs and they're not getting paid much. They wanted to reduce that. And the Tories have convinced themselves, oh no, we want control over that, which for them control means a huge increase in immigration from all over the world. And it's just baffling. I mean, I don't know why why do they think that's that's what people wanted or why that's think that's a sensible course of action is uh, really beyond me. I'm struck by and I've written about this in one of the substacks that what you've seen under the Conservatives, particularly under Boris Johnson, and now I think increasingly we'll see it under Liz Truss, is a is a liberalisation of migration policy outside of Europe. So increasingly we'll see you know, rising numbers of Indians, a new free trade deal, I'm sure will accelerate that, uh, Nigerians, Zimbabwe, Americans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think... There's a sort of myth, right, that's emerging in British politics at the moment in the, the, the Truss era. This kind of myth that what the party needs to do is return to Boris Johnson because he understood the realignment. And the last few days, I've just sort of been reflecting on that and thinking, actually, I'm really not convinced by that. I don't think Boris Johnson did understand the realignment at all. He might have had some sort of Brexiteer vibes. You know, he he was popular. He, you know, he was genuinely sort of I suppose not populist, but he he had charisma and he was popular with the new voters he needed, right? So cross class lines in that way. But he was always, you know, he was the biggest enthusiast for this kind of, you know, I, I've written about this before, but I went to one of these Brexit. This is what made me think maybe this is not a good idea is that they were having this Brexit party and he gave a speech and he was talking about, you know, the city of London rising again under Thatcher and becoming this kind of global centre of finance where the entire world's talent comes to and and you know, I just thought this is completely opposite of what people want. You know, you're 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 going to really disappoint people, and you're going to let them down because what they basically want, they want the slowdown of globalization. They don't want it accelerated, which is exactly what Boris Johnson wants. He had this kind of imperial dream of London as this kind of modern, you know, financial. I mean, Britain, it's kind of social economic, you know, problem is that London. Is basically too powerful, too economically dominant, and, and London for the Conservatives also has a very kind of liberalising effect because you know one of the big factors in, in voting is is um, density of population. So the more urban a country is, the more liberal it tends to be. You know lo- the Tories are doing very very badly in London, and you know they're looking like they're getting they're going to get wiped out. Um, not just London. I mean the whole commuter all over the place. Yeah, but I mean in particular the cities are becoming complete sort of dead zones, which is very similar to. Uh, what's happened in the states? So, to the extent, it's kind of hard to um, it's hard to counter. But you know, that's another reason to think of you know immigration's adding hundreds of thousands every year. It's making Britain more and more urban. It's making it very difficult for future for Tories to win in future. Um, the Tory, you know, and, and one of the diversity issue, to, the Tories can get quite high. Um, they do quite well in among certain groups, and but they never achieve a majority. They almost, I mean, almost never. They they will never ever receive, you know, a majority a plurality of the minority vote. So you know, their idea of making Britain more diverse is just is not whether you think it's right or wrong. It is not good for the Tory party. Like they they're basically working against themselves in every way. And and 
you know, they need to address the problem of housing. Like, really, it's really existential. And I, and I, I think as, as my children get older, um, they're nowhere near, you know, being old enough to leave home yet, but this will come up in the future. You know, if they don't have somewhere to live, then uh, they're not going to vote Tory. And, you know, they've had, you know, they've got two years left now to do something about this. So time is running out. And, and um, you know, and then they come to the other problem, the list, the list trust is just the personnel problem. It just seems very lacking in charisma and um you know her ability to sort of command confidence in in the government the party it, it does i mean we're, we're heading for quite tough times and you know we really need to we need we need like a, a Zelensky, don't we we need someone who's really going to inspire she's not Zelensky, to put it mildly an mp said to me the other day that uh conservative mp that somehow they found a way to replace a somebody with a nobody that is sadly true and i think there's a lot of that chat going on in private amongst the MPs. But then you talk, you talk about the Conservative Party, and one of the things that I do find rather remarkable, looking back at the events of this year, wherever you lo- wherever you sit on the political landscape, is on the one hand we have this party that decides, okay, enough is enough. Partygate, Chris Pincher, it's all too much. He's got to go. Now, ordinarily, you might think that a governing party, particularly one of the most successful parties in the Western world, would then come up with a plan for what would follow that leadership. And what we then discover is actually there is really no such plan. And I find it also remarkable, given the amount of lead-in time that they had, uh, Liz Truss and her team, that despite basically knowing in July that she was going to win the contest, that uh, she then comes into office and does such a bad job at communicating what her premiership is going to be about, why she's going to prioritise growth, why she wants to do things differently from the status quo. You go back to her speech outside Downing Street, and this is before the the Queen passed away. There was was nothing on long-term strategy. There was no attempt to frame her premiership. So then when we got to the mini-budget and we got to all of the announcements, it all just kind of came out all at once. There was no coherency really to it. There was no nothing, no consideration to strategy or positioning. And I genuinely think path dependency really, really matters in politics. From where you start determines where you go. And from where Liz Truss has started, it's just impossible to see. I'm happy to be wrong. I've been wrong in the past, but it's impossible to see a destination that, that ends with an election win. I, I just can't see that. I mean, She's alienated so many voters that as of this morning, um, where are we now, October the 6th, only 40% of Boris Johnson's voters are planning to vote Conservative at the next election. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it makes you wonder what happened to the personnel thing, the Tory party. I wonder if they've lost um, a lot of talent. I mean, a lot of it must have been to do with the referendum. A lot of Remainers within the... I mean, I know Liz Truss was a... Um, Remainer, but she gives off Brexit vibes, doesn't she? So um, they've just lost a lot of talent in the party, and you know that's what's left. It doesn't seem to attract. It doesn't really seem to attract. Like, I mean, if you but if you look at the selection, then there weren't. It wasn't like a huge variety of people available. I mean, on my personal choice, I think Michael Gove is probably the most effective of all them. But I think he's, uh, I think he's made sort of a lot of enemies in the party, and there's lots of sort of you know, I mean. You know, people won't forgive him for sort of stabbing Boris in the back in 2016. But if you look at what he actually said about Boris, it's completely accurate. He was not, he did not have the temperament to run a, a country or to lead properly. He was too sort of 
um, he's too much like a journalist, really. He's too sort of flighty and too disorganised and uh, just wants to be popular. So what do you think happened? Let's say you're right. Let's say we're heading for conservative defeat. What happens next? I don't know. I mean, you know, you've, you've written about this uh, today and, uh, I've, I've, you know, other people, I think I've written about it. And I mean, I've, the chances of um, a split party must be quite, uh, or at least not a split party, but another sort of UKIP thing coming along. Uh, maybe not as sort of hard edged as UKIP in their sort of branding. But um, a party that basically has a kind of national conservative agenda with more of a sort of welfare state. I mean, that's just that's that's happened in every single country in Western Europe, pretty much. Um, I, I mean, I know in the past we thought people thought, well, the fast pass post system will stop that. But we saw with the UKIP, they could actually overcome that quite easily after a while. Once they started getting all these second places and lots of constituencies, they um, they became such a threat to the Tory party that, you know, they got the referendum. I think that's just there must be a huge chance that happening again, especially because the I, I think also you know like the the immigration and house prices thing the 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 interests of the different sections of the Tory party just don't really align at all. Um, you know the immigration things because they they represent like okay they represent employers basically and, and the referendum had a big employer employee kind of divide. I mean I remember speaking to someone after who he actually ran a kind of small factory in the Midlands, they don't give them away. But it was actually almost entirely British staffed, which is very unusual. And he said, you know, obviously I want to remain because it would be like terrible for our supply lines and all that. It would be really, it would be bad, for, you know, which most employers thought. Um, he said, I gave him a talk the day before. I said, listen, it's up to you how you vote. But I just want to say, this is what I say as your employer. This is what it means to me. This is why I think remain is probably better for us. He says literally every single one voted Brexit. Like, <laughs> didn't convince a single person. The reason was because they wanted, they wanted, they saw it as their wage interests. It was basically their class interests. You know, like Johnny, John Lydon's talking about, you know, Brexit being a victory for the working class. Like, whether you think it was a good idea, and I'm, you know, quite cynical about it now, it was, it was basically. Yeah, you, you, you wrote quite recently that you basically changed your mind on Brexit. Yeah, I, I mean, I changed my mind almost immediately because I remember, I mean, I was watching Boris Johnson and thought, I, I just thought, I can't see the two the two visions of Britain really at all meeting on that. You know, there are two different versions of Brexit. Like one of them is going to end up uh, just incredibly bitter about the way things are going. I just thought the whole. I mean, it's you know Singapore and Thames. Is, I don't think we you know we wouldn't be Singapore because we don't have an effective like police system. <laughs> you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't have the good side of Singapore. Um, I just don't think that would have satisfied you know a majority of um, of Brexit voters. Do you not think, I mean, as a sort of, you know, self-confessed conservative and so on, do, would you not Would you not still say on balance that you would rather take the benefits of having government autonomy, accountability, democratic legitimacy, you know, the ability to make choices as a sort of, you know, independent sovereign power than, than revert to the pre-referendum status quo? I think, you know... I- I think these these things will be worth it in the long term. Turn, uh, you know, I think in twenty years' time there might be some visible Brexit things. But you know, if I'm honest, like immigration was such a large part of it. I don't want to live in a kind of in a Californian style society where you have like a kind of basically surf class of very low paid workers from poor countries and a middle class that just shrinks in size because they're all competing for these, you know, incredibly expensive houses. I would much rather live in a quite egalitarian and sort of boring place like Denmark and I think that's 
what we have now, the replacement Brexit, is moving us even more towards um, this kind of uh, dark vision of America, almost. Um, you know, without the good sides of America, because you know we remember America is incredibly rich, and so is uh, so is Australia. We we are nowhere near as rich as those countries, so we have we're kind of like a like a poor man's version of all those places, but with with, with all the downsides. But that's that's why even when I talk with friends on, you know, in the Labour Party and including a former prime minister who will remain nameless, but I did an, an event with recently and said, and even they say, look, you might disagree with Truss. You might think she's not very, not very appealing, charismatic politician, but she is right to basically say we need to prioritize growth and we need to think about growth in a different way. Right. That basically the the argument that she's brought forward, which is we have to change a conversation in the country. Is actually the correct diagnosis, the prognosis, I'm sure we both agree, is probably not. Well, it's not the one that we would choose to pursue. But but changing the dial on the conversation, basically saying to the country, are you happy to continue with very low growth rates, with pretty high rates of tax, with big piles of debt? Or do you want to try and revitalize uh, the size of the pie? I mean, that that is surely the right move to make, albeit one that was badly executed. Yeah, no, I mean, I think she's entirely right. Um, and I think a lot of people are uh, just unaware of, like, Britain's, you know, relative poverty. I, I think we're closer now to Romania in GDP per capita than Holland. You know, in the last 15 years, countries like that have just moved, you know, the Netherlands was quite similar to us, I think. At the time of the crash, and now it's just sort of raised head. We, we, you know, we basically had a sort of Italian-style decade and a half of just incredible sluggish growth. Um, the economy seems to be going nowhere. I mean, and that's the kind of thing that I find very like maddening. Like, so I'm not an economist, so I would feel I feel very out of my depth when I argue with economists. Although I kind of think economics is kind of like tea leaf reading. But you know, this argument is oh, well, to to maintain economic growth, we have to continue with like you know, a million, three million, ten million people a year. So it's at record levels. It has been for like 15 years. Our economy is going nowhere. Like, I mean, we should all be flying golden helicopters if it's that beneficial. You know, we've tried the same thing. We've done the same thing for this many years. It's not working. And, um, you know, the argument is, oh, we just do more of it. I, but, you know, in terms of growth, yeah. I mean, but the, the the upside, the optimistic take on this might be, you know, it takes kind of basically a catastrophe, doesn't it? And so often as individuals or as a country, sometimes it takes a complete disaster for people just to change course and say, okay, I've had enough of this. Um, you know, we've got the shock of the war in Ukraine. Um, the economy is uh, sort of, we've got, the, you know, the, the, we're, the, the economy is actually doing okay, but there's the prospect of really bad times ahead. So maybe it's actually time to um, do something, you know, and, you know, the major problems are the problem, the difficulty of getting stuff built is in Britain, you know, we're very restricted by housing regulations. Uh, we don't build infrastructure. And, you know, and the Tories have really failed to, to build this, these kind of things. They've had 12 years to do all these things, you know, and we've just kind of accepted that we're just going to get sort of poorer and poorer and poorer. But again, I mean, that, that comes down, a lot of that, I think, comes down to housing. That has a huge like, downwards effect on how wealthy we are. And what do you think? I mean, I'm hearing a sort of tension in the, on the one hand, you're saying, well, the country's becoming too urban, we're... We're, so we've got too many people coming in. On the other hand, we need to build more. We need to get more houses. We need to expand the housing market. I mean, it's sort of just, let, let's say, you know, dream, dream ticket scenario time. You can pick anybody to replace Liz Truss and push a particular brand of conservative politics. I mean, where where do you 
think the party will go? Because the reason I, I ask is my working assumption here is Truss loses the election. The Conservative Party does a 2005 and says, oh, gee, we've lost touch with the country. We better rush back to some good old David Cameron, liberal, fluffy, conservative politics, and we need to win back the centre, and that's the future for the Conservative Party. That's my kind of working assumption of where we end up, which kind of leaves a whole lot of people not in the political system. But um, if you could do anything post-trust, what do you do? I would probably have the reanimated corpse of Lord Salisbury as my number one choice. For... <laughs> but since that's probably like, not... Why, why would you do that? I, I just... Um, so I, I don't think... I mean, I don't think they would do that, to be honest. I mean, I think the, the likely thing is in the next 12 months, they get rid of tr- trust and they go the opposite direction. Um, they have someone much more blue labory. Uh, really? Well, I just think because, I mean... The Roman Tory party is it doesn't really have any sort of overriding philosophy anymore, does it? So I think they're more likely to just try one and you know, one one side of the party does it and fails. It's more likely to just then become controlled by the other side of the party, which is gonna have a go and probably uh, maybe push things the other direction because they think, well, you know, we'd like to win the election and that's where the votes are. I, I know, I think it's almost a situation where, you know, PR would probably suit the the rights in Britain because you could at least have three different parties then. Um, and then you could have a coalition and then you could agree what kind of compromises you make beforehand so that, you know, you have a sort of national conservative wing and you have a sort of, you know, um, I suppose a post Thatcherite sort of slightly libertarianish wing. And then you have, you know, the sort of the sort of soft center sort of party. Um, and then you could at least have a kind of working relationship. But the moment I, I feel like the problem is. But they don't actually know what the the philosophy is of the party, which is fine in the past because we knew sort of what it was. You know, you know what it, Thatcher and that kind of area, they knew they were basically there to. They were it's like an anti-socialist coalition of conservatives and liberals who didn't want, you know, socialists of various types to run it. I mean, what what exactly is the party for now? I mean, I'm not entirely sure. What what does it even mean? What uh, I mean, I can't. It, when the Brexit thing at least won them because they had a. It was, you know, the 2019 election was like, get Brexit done. If you want Brexit done, if, even if you support Brexit or if you're just sick of hearing about it, that's fine. You had that and then you had to stop Jeremy Corbyn, which is like a brilliant reason to voting, you know. Now, I mean, what difference does it make? If, if you're a kind of um, a sort of natural small C conservative, like, do you have that much to fear from a new from a Labour government, from Keir Starmer? I, I'm not particularly bothered. I mean, what are they going to do? Like, the police have aren't doing their job. There's a you know huge low clear up, you know, all the sort of um, you know, the Tory politicians talk about the woke agenda, but they, you know, they could actually just overturn the laws behind it. They don't. You know, they'd rather just complain about it. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff like the Equality Act, the uh, Communications Act, you know, why don't they just overturn these things if if they're in power? They've got like two years left. So, you know, there is a feeling if you're a conservative, like nothing's really getting done now anyway. So I mean what difference does it make if you lose? And I mean, that's the impression I get. I mean, well, the answer from the research would be that uh, we have got a generation of generation of MPs, particularly on the conservative side, and I think we've it's always been this way, who simply hold a very different set of values from not just all voters, but many of the people who have now been voting for them since 2016. So, if you look at uh, you know the average values of a post 2016 
conservative voter that probably switched from apathy or labor to voting conservative they are as as you've written about in your pieces a bit to the left on the economy a bit to the right on culture now ordinarily you see this is why i'm very skeptical about all the stuff that's written about conservative campaign geniuses and camp you know the sort of focus group wonder kids and all the rest of it because i don't see how any party that genuinely had a solid grasp of who is voting for it would make the decisions that the Conservative Party has made over the last few years. So there is something going wrong. Now, it might be that Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, Theresa May, none of them really had kind of heavy hitting, you know, intellectuals, thinkers around them in a way that, say, Thatcher did. And whatever you think about the Thatcher project, it was, you know, surround it 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 was informed by serious thinkers who had a you know relatively coherent agenda uh and and so on now you look at johnson you look at may you look at truss maybe truss less so but there's there's no real intellectual blueprint for the project at all there's no real kind of i don't, I don't sense ideological sophistication here i think there's some impulses and some instincts that might be driving people that go back to, you know, the Oxbridge days, but 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 that's kind of where it where it stops. Now that to me is we're in this sort of curious place where British Conservatives used to laugh at, you know, their Republican counterparts. But now I notice Republicans in the US will 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 say to me they're laughing at Britain's Conservatives because they're watching this kind of experiment unfold while they've pivoted to this what they call the sort of national conservative tr- tr- trend where they're now saying, look, that model is done. Like that model is 1980s. It's not going to work anymore. And the Ron DeSantis's and so on are saying, actually, you've got to completely rebuild uh, conservative politics. You need to get much more comfortable with using the state to achieve your goals. You've got to have very clear and compelling policies for industrial working class communities that make a difference. You've got to go up against big tech you've got to go up against big corporations georgia maloney's saying some pretty similar stuff in italy yet we are sort of doing this kind of 1986 tribute act which seems to be completely adrift from where much of the country is yeah i mean i mean again i mean this is uh this is might be to me a good reason for more of a sort of coalition thinking about it i mean i'm sort of more inclined towards thinking I still think the market is like the best solution in a lot of these situations. I, I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm not sure the state can deliver the sort of conservatism we want. But you know, parties just basically go where where the voting blocks are. That you know, I, I think the most interesting analysis that one of the, one of the most interesting. I mean, it's very similar to your kind of analysis. Remember Steve? Is it uh, Steve Davis? Uh, who wrote about you know the great realignment about basically four blocks always in politics and you know the, the tories won in 2019 because they just happened to um unite their two blocks better you know and one of those blocks is a kind of older um uh you know the sort of red wall constituency tend to be older less likely to go to university more um uh you know more s- small town and um you know that they are sort of basically. We know whether conservatives like it or not, and a lot of free market tiers aren't going to like it. They are sort of a necessary part of any coalition, aren't they? You know, you need to get that kind of group. Well, I think I think the trust wing 
probably represents at best maybe 20% of the conservative electorate maybe i mean if you look at if you look at the latest data from the british social attitude survey and you ask people their views on tax and spend the view that we should reduce taxes and reduce spending on public services which to be frank is the only way this agenda becomes feasible in my view that's a 6% position 6% of the country basically support that the vast majority are either saying keep taxes as they are and spending as they are or increase taxes and spend more. In other words, so I get a national health service that works so I can get a GP appointment and so I can send my kids to a decent school. And that the remarkable thing about that, to me, at least when you look at the data over the last 20, 30 years, is that's been a pretty consistent story. That six percent. It has always been. A, a very fringe position, um, which firstly makes you realise how remarkable it was that David Cameron managed to win a majority in 2015 after doing the things, um, doing some of the things that he did. But it also, I think, just underscores the fact that you've got a, you've got a country now increasingly, and this may tie into your arguments about the demographic changes that are taking place. But you've got a country that is instinctively hardwired against this kind of slash and burn Davos on Thames agenda. And I just think that's going to create such a blockage, not just for trust, but also for the for anyone who follows her. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I would say the counter to that is, I mean, is it really, I mean, obviously, there have been local, local councils have had cuts, but the size of the state has not, exact, I mean, the size of the state is still large, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the amounts we're getting taxed has continued to go up. I'm not sure. I mean, I guess that's difference in perception and everything, but it doesn't feel to me that we've, you know, had a huge slash and burn. What what I found interesting is, um, I don't know how rogue the polls were, but I've seen a couple of these, you know, the younger voters, although obviously very sort of left on most issues, were quite in favour of the tax cuts. Because, I mean, I, I mean, a lot of this comes down to basic generation Ponzi schemes. So if you're a young voter, you get taxed a lot. Um, you can have very high rates of tax, especially if you're paying back university fees, and you take or get almost nothing from the state. I mean, you don't get any public services based in the state if you live in, um, you know, you don't use the health service, you don't use the education system because you, the rents are so high, you can't afford to have kids. You don't really get anything from the state, and the state is basically there to support um, the generation who are born between 1940 and 1970, whatever. Um, so I think in, in that sense, that's, you know, the Tories have the, I mean, this is like kind of fundamental problem is they are a sort of generational party. Um, and they, that, that is, um, you know, they, they, when that, when that, you know, when that group starts to die out, which, you know, they inevitably will, they haven't really found anyone to replace them. And I think also the economy is basically, um, uh, been basically geared towards, towards that generation. And, you know, we're sort of paying the price later. Can I can I just push back against you on a couple of things because yeah, go ahead. because one of the narratives that you also sort of implicitly kind of support in a way is is the kind of you know the Londonization of the country that basically what we're going to see over the next twenty years is this sort of ascendant new coalition that is going to consign conservatives to opposition for a very long time and I and I, and I totally see that and I see that in the data and I am. Um, Broadly, one over. Londonization is like the Manchesterization as well. <laughs> like all the big cities are. Sure, sure, sure. But 
but here, you know, here are some things that that I think people sometimes maybe get wrong on that. Let me let me just put them to you. One is I think people exaggerate the pace and the scale of that change, and this is not about you, but mainly about many of the academics, pollsters, commentators who support that change. Right. So we hear a lot about the. Uh, the trends, and I would argue some of the ways in which those trends are analysed are slightly misleading. So, for example, one thing people often do is they'll take the 18 to 64-year-old working-age population as a basis of analysis, and then that will inflate the trends because basically all the pensioners are locked off, right? That's just a little minor example. But more more generally, I think um, there are a few things to keep in mind. One is differentials on turnout so if you're a if you're a zoomer you're highly liberal especially if you're a zoomer graduate woman you're like off the chart socially liberal and you're drifting away from everybody else in kind of you know leading this new revolution but um you're still 30 points less likely than a boomer to vote right there's point one on turnout point two is geography right we know that the zoomers minorities middle class professionals have a massive geographical disadvantage because they are concentrated in the cities and the university towns, which as Boris Johnson discovered, and probably future conservatives will discover, if you align your electorate around that basis, around small towners, workers, non-graduates, pensioners, etc., there's an inbuilt systemic advantage for you, right? If you're what if you're willing to exploit it. And that's especially true in England. That's so geography for me is point two. Point three is I don't think we've yet seen in British politics what the Americans have seen with the Hispanic Latino vote, which is working class non-graduate minorities moving from left to right. And the reason I think that's important is because of all the groups that are likely to do that in Britain. I suspect British Indians will probably end up moving increasingly towards the Conservatives if the Conservatives decide they want to start making some of these issues that we've talked about. A, a live issue. So if they want to talk more about you know, schooling, if they want to talk more about gender identity, if they want to talk more about borders, migration, all that kind of stuff. So I, I think there's, there's a third point there around fluctuations, shall we say, within, within voting electorates. My key point here, though, is I think all of that is, is, is why the pace of this liberalisation, which I'm not denying is happening, it's, it's very, very visible, but I think the pace will probably end up being slower politically than it may feel culturally. Uh, and that, that I think, is something that, you know, you look at France, you look at Italy, you look at Sweden now. And to me, it just seems like the pushback to some of that may be stronger than we currently anticipate. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, definitely the you know the political change will, will be will be slower, but um, you know, in Britain the sort of Tory party doesn't it? It sort of evolves to basically win elections without particularly getting its without particularly sort of having any kind of cultural pushback. I mean, I can't think of much that's um, I can't think of much in twelve years which has particularly made the population more likely to be a Tory voter in terms of you know when Labour gets in they. You know, more people are going to universities. Well, in the past, it was sort of, you know, what more people would be, um, you know, the argument was always, you know, if you're more likely to be welfare, more to labour. I think that's obviously changed now. But if you are more go to university, more likely to be labour. You know, the more diverse population, more, more likely to be labour. 
uh, the, you know, the more urban you get more labor. Also, the more single people are, the more likely to be left wing. You know, the, so, you know, conservative parties, for example, don't talk about family values anymore. It's kind of like, you know, that kind of argument is gone. But there is a big correlation between the size of, um, you know, the number of married couples with kids and how, you know, likely they are to vote for conservative parties. I think all these trends, in particular, the number of um, people who go on, you know, stay unmarried for various reasons, that def- definitely does push the the culture in a sort of more liberal direction unless there's something in the counter. I mean, I think the continental thing is interesting. So this is why I think, you know, we are going to get something like UKIP because in all these kind of countries, there is a sort of right-wing populist government. I think the interesting thing will be happen to see what happens in Italy. Um, you know, Italy's got lots of sort of structural dysfunctions. Um and if the sort of right-wing populists work there and if they're not particularly extreme, but if they're effective in dealing with things like um, illegal immigration and crime, then it's obviously going to spread. I mean, the the advantage that conservatives has, it have is that they have got basically, when it comes to identity, I mean, I know conservatives, I mean, like, like me, <laughs> I talk about identity politics, but conservatives are basically the ace in the pack when it comes to um, identity. They have a much, you know, national identity is a much stronger identity than um all the other identities people talk about, gender and sexuality and stuff. Once, um, so what, you know, once something like national conservatism gets into power, it, it tends to be very, very popular with the public. I mean, you know, like Orban's hungry. This that's the classic example. Trump was different because he was so basically dysfunctional as a person and chaotic, and um, all sorts of things were happening there. But you know, that that is the sort of only pushback I can see. And if that kind of works, instead, I can see it spreading towards. Uh, other parts of Western Europe, definitely. I mean, I, and I think that's what might emerge in Britain. I mean, the, the issue about um, minority voting, I think, I mean, obviously there is a shift amongst Indians. I, I wonder, though, I mean, in in America, so in America, I think the minority move towards Republicans it was obviously very accelerated by the George Floyd protests um, and the sort of general violence and dysfunction at the time. Uh, you know, in America, the Republicans are sort of seen generally as the white party and the Democrats are sort of seen as the multicultural party, but also particularly like the African-American party. And I think I think a lot of minorities were sort of put off by the kind of extreme race politics of the Democrats, um, which they associated with this kind of disorder in 2020. I, th- I can see that happening in Britain, but in Britain, I think there's going to be much more of a clash over the subcontinent, which is like another reason I'm not very keen on um, on immigration being part of the Indian trade deal. You know, we've seen it in Leicester. Um, I can see a sort of a sort of more right-wing Hindu fringe kind of becoming part of the Tory party for those kind of reasons, uh, which, you know, I don't, I don't welcome. <laughs> I don't want, you know, I don't really want those arguments. Well, it's, it's certainly clear that unless the Conservatives find a way of revitalising their support or not only repairing and reconnecting with this broken realignment but also thinking ahead in terms of you know 18 to 49 year olds people who are renting their homes people who are living you know in in areas that have been left behind over the last 50 years it's it's looking like a bleak a bleak future for them and i just i just wonder whether political parties sometimes get to a point where really what they do need is a catastrophic defeat to wake them up and refocus their minds on what their sense of purpose is, what their guiding philosophy is, what their 
what their aim in politics is and i and i hope that uh i hope for the sake of the country that the conservatives begin to find a sense of purpose and focus because at the moment we are drifting uh and not really dealing with many of these longer term structural issues that you're pointing to i think they need to come together and sort of at least like i don't know hammer out some like 10 points like what is it we believe like why are we like anti-woke for instance why does that matter what does that even mean uh, and articulate uh especially towards okay so people in the 18 24 age group whatever what does like concert being a conservative mean like your life now is now dominated by like very dysfunctional, unhappy people giving you terrible advice about life, which is just guaranteed to make everything go wrong. You know, the, the overwhelming cultural forces out there are completely, uh, you know, guided towards kind of like misery and loneliness. Conservatism has a kind of like a worldview. You know, it's almost like a Jordan Peterson thing. It's like, this is like, we're going to, you know, this is a better way to, to sort of live your life. And most importantly, we're going to get house prices down so you can afford them. Some way of getting, you know, I think the most obvious thing would be to do, you assign a certain number of buildings, um, new properties in the most sought after area and say only British people are allowed to buy these. You know, it's just a basic thing. I, you know, I, I don't know how big an effect like foreign rental market has in London, but you just have to say this is our priority. It's like young British people getting on the housing market. This is our priority as a government. Um, and this just signals like, okay, we care about you first. Like we put you before the interests of everyone else, uh, you know, and that's maybe one good reason to vote for us. Otherwise, like, what is the point exactly? Well, it's certainly something that I would, uh, I would like to poll and see where, see where people are, uh, see where people are on that. Um, Ed, it's been great to talk. It's been wonderful. Not too depressing, actually. Um, and I, as I said at the beginning, I'm already recommending, uh, Ed Substack, and I do strongly urge you to go and check it out and uh, read it, uh, not just for the political analysis, also for the endless humour and wit. Uh, Ed, thank you for your time. Thank you for all of your pieces. And uh, I'm sure we will speak in the aftermath of the next general election. <laughs> that was it. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs>